All right, like we say every Sunday, let's go ahead and grab our Bibles and turn to Revelation chapter 19. And the title of my message this morning, it's Celebration Time. Celebration Time. Yeah, I'm going to date myself, but one of the very first movies I remember my father ever taking me to was the original Star Wars back in the late 1970s. Okay? Okay, I specifically didn't want to give the exact year there, Mark. Wow, your age shall find you out. Is that, is that what we're saying here? Okay. I remember waiting in this enormous line around the theater to get in to see the picture. They didn't have the uh, online ticketing, you know, get your tickets in advance type of thing. No fast pass like Disney. You know, you had to wait in line for this movie. And then when people would come out, you know, we'd hold our ears because they were all talking about it and all the things that ever occurred. But one of the things that I was amazed by, I'm just this little guy, you know, was that at the end of the movie, the whole theater erupted in applause. They just, some stood up and were clapping. I'm like, oh, the credits are finally here. All right. What? That was a new experience for me. And I didn't experience that again until the third installment of The Lord of the Rings, The Return of the King. And people in the theater once again stood up and applauded. And I was like, is it because it's finally over or it's because it's a three-hour three movie or what, what was it? And then I realized it was that good triumphed over evil. The good guys in the end win. And if this section of Revelation says anything, it says this, we win. And we're going to rejoice because of that. We are going to rejoice over the fact that God has dealt now with the world system. That individuals have, uh, you know, uh, advanced themselves upon. And those who have been persecuted will be vindicated by God. And we, his saints, will rejoice in heaven. In fact, in Revelation chapter 18, verse 20, we conclude by hearing these words, Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you holy apostles and, pro and prophets, for God has avenged you on her. In the first 10 verses of Revelation 19, we're going to find three reasons that we can rejoice. And that rejoicing can begin today. We don't have to wait until the end, because if God says that something's going to happen in His Word, it's going to happen. And even though it hasn't actually happened yet, I can uh, comfort myself with the promise and the hope that it one day will, because God is faithful, and everything that God says will come to pass will come to pass. And we're going to find three things, as if you like taking notes. We're going to, number one, be able to rejoice because God has vanquished evil once and for all. No, number two, we are going to rejoice because the Lord reigns. He reigns now, but he'll reign permanently and everlasting from this point forward in our text. And number three, because the marriage of the Lamb has come. The marriage supper of the Lamb has come. So let's pick it up in verse 1 of chapter 19 as we continue on, as John writes to us. He says, after these things, what things? Well, after the judgment 
of the world system classified as Babylon. In chapter 17, God deals with the world religious system that gives individuals the illusion and the, dis- and the false hope of salvation. Initially, the Bible tells us that the Antichrist, when, when he arises to power, will allow for the religions of the world to flourish. That is, everyone except those who hold to Christ, for they will be persecuted during this time. Now, we believe here at Calvary that the church itself, you and I, have been removed at this point by an, in an event called the rapture of the church. And now the world has been plunged into a seven-year tribulation period. And during those seven year peri- that seven-year period, individuals will come to saving faith in Jesus Christ. But during that seven-year period, they will be heavily persecuted for their faith. And so, as we discover here, that the individuals who have been persecuted will be avenged by God, and God begins that by the judgment of the religious system that has falsely promised salvations to those who follow in it. One of the objections that many have concerning the Christian faith is this, and that is, there are so many religions in the world, why do you believe that Christianity is the only way to God and to heaven. The reason we believe that is not because we are narrow-minded. It's because Jesus himself said, For I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And the reason he said that is because no one else throughout history has done what Jesus could only do, and that is sacrifice himself for you and I. That sacrifice being accepted by the, by the Father and demonstrated that acceptance by the resurrection on the third day. Now, we will always be called narrow-minded because we are not openly willing to accept that all religions lead to God. Now, I believe that they do. All religions do lead to God, but only Jesus Christ leads to heaven. Eventually, the Bible tells us that every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Oh, they're all going to stand before him. They're all going to bow before him, but then the Bible says at that time it's too late. Either they'll stand before him at that moment when they realize that he was the one and true Savior of the entire world. Or they'll stand before him at the great white throne judgment of Revelation chapter 20, which we'll look at in a couple of weeks. But in either occasion, it is too late. The opportunity that they had to receive Christ has now passed. And they will have to stand before God and give a reason that they believe that they should be allowed into heaven. And yet that reason will fall flat because perfection has not yet been met. Many people think that God graves on a curve. Now, I'm thankful for teachers that grade on a curve, okay? This is why I graduated, okay? Because that curve was quite steep at certain times, you know? In high school, there were the A student, the B students, the C students, the D students, and then my friends, okay? But God doesn't grade on a curve. 
God clearly tells us that perfection is needed. But perfection can never be obtained in and through ourselves. The only way that protection, uh, protection, perfection can be obtained is in and through Christ. Where not only he cleanses us of our sin, but then robes us, the Bible says, with his righteousness. And it is that righteousness that allows for us to stand before God the Father in perfection. And therefore, we can take no glory for ourselves because it wasn't we who have done it. It wasn't you and I. It was what Christ has done on our behalf. So this world system of Revelation 17 will be judged. As I said, the Antichrist will allow for the world religions to flourish until a certain point in time where the God in whom they all believe they are serving, he will then dictate is all culminated in he himself. And he will de demand to be worshipped as God. It's at that point that he will require each individual of the world to submit to him by taking a number on the back of their hand or on their forehead. And without it, they cannot buy or sell. And it is this that Christ has judged, God has judged in Revelation 17. Then in Revelation 18, we find that he judges the rulers of this world. That is the kings, the, politi the politicians of this world who have bought into this world system that is governed by none other than Satan himself. There's only two kingdoms in our world. Though we have many nations, there are truly only two kingdoms. The kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan. Which kingdom are you of? If you have not been taken out of darkness and drawn into light, if you have not been resurrected from death into life, then you yourself, you yourself are in the kingdom of darkness. And though you may not feel that you have subjected yourself to Satan, or maybe you don't even believe in him, you are serving him in your rejection of Christ. But if you have been taken out of darkness and drawn into the light... If you have been taken from death and given life in and through Christ, then you are part of the kingdom of God. Joint heirs with Christ in all that he has given us. As Paul wrote in Ephesians, we have been blessed with every heavenly blessing that is found in and through Christ, here and now, in him. But at the, with the result of these institutions being judged... Notice with me, after these things, I heard a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, Hallelujah. That is, praise God. Salvation and glory and honor and power belong to the Lord our God. For, he, he, for true and righteous are his judgments, because he has judged the great harlot who corrupted the earth with her fornication. And he has avenged on her the blood of his servants shed by her. And again, they said, hallelujah. Her smoke rises up forever and ever. This system, this world system will never exist again after God's final judgment of it. And he himself, after his return, will reign for 1,000 years. We know it as the millennial kingdom, after which 
New heavens and new earth will be created, and that's where we shall dwell for all eternity. But here, there's a finality. Here, we have that moment in the movie where everybody stands up and begins to clap at the end because good has overcome evil once and for all. John makes it abundantly clear here in verse 2 that the righteous judgment of God is just that. It is righteous and true. God in His holiness judges fairly. And He judges permanently. Why? Because He gave every means of salvation in and through Christ. And if those means are rejected, then all that is left is to stand before Him in your own righteousness, in your own rebellion, and give an account for all that you have done. One of the great tragedies over the last three years here in the United States of America is the deterioration of our justice system here in America. There are many who are gravely concerned that it will be this that undermines the stability of our country. Over the last three years, we have seen things that we probably never thought we would ever see in our country. We've seen, in some cases, the courts seem to be more concerned about protecting the criminal, then looking to, you know, comfort and show justice to the one who has suffered the crime. We have seen people being let off, scot-free. We see individuals no longer even being prosecuted of certain crimes, and when individuals try to stand up for the rights and the laws that we are protected by, they then themselves become criminals. I don't know if you saw it recently. There was this news article of this man who went into a 7-Eleven and started stealing all of the cigarettes and putting it in a big garbage can. Well, the owners had enough, and they stopped him. And then one took a broomstick to him. Now, I'm not condoning this, but let's be honest, right? Let's be honest. It's, it's come to the point where people need, feel that they need to stand up for themselves, and rightfully so. The criminal system, we've seen the FBI weaponized against individuals that would hold their school boards accountable for the pornography that they're introducing to our children. I love when the school districts begin to prohibit the reading of this curriculum. The one, <laughs> the one uh, school district said, Sir, I'm sorry, you have to stop. That's inappropriate. And then he asked the question, Then why is my eight-year-old daughter reading it in the classroom? Why are these things happening? And people are losing faith in our judicial system. Why is it that every time our current president seems to be getting into trouble, there's another indictment against Donald Trump? Is this just coincidental? Or are laws now being used to suppress political forerunners? These are questions that we need to ask ourselves. But in the end, when it comes to God, his judgments are faithful and true. There's no appeals court. There's no injustice. It is righteous and true 
for what God will do at this moment in time. And in verse 3, again they say hallelujah. Her smoke rises up forever and ever, meaning it will never, ever, ever return again. In verse 4, And the 24 elders and the four living creatures, and we met these individuals in Revelation chapter 4, the 24 elders represents the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 apostles of the church. And the elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who sat on the throne saying, Amen and Hallelujah. Then a voice came from the throne saying, Praise our God, all you His servants and those who fear Him both small and great. And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, as the sound of many waters, as the sound of the mighty thundering, saying, Hallelujah, for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. The God of all power reigns. Number two, evil has been vanquished, and now we see that God has taken His rightful place and he reigns forevermore and evermore. This is so important for us to understand. That Jesus Christ redeemed the world, his creation, you and I back to him through his first coming. It is his second coming that he will establish his physical reign over all the world. Including you and I. Now he reigns today. He reigns from heaven. And all things are in His control, and all things are playing out exactly the way God would have them play out, regardless of what man tries to do or attempts to do to thwart the efforts of God. They find out that even in their acts of free will, God's plan is perfectly being executed before them and amongst them. And this is the moment that we have been waiting for. In Revelation chapter 6, verses 10 through 11, remember these words. And they cried with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then a white robe was given to each of them, and it was said to them that they should rest a little while longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who would be killed as they were was complete. That time has now come. I think of the psalmist when he wrote in Psalm 106, 47 to 48. Save us, O Lord our God, and gather us from among the Gentiles to give thanks to your holy name, to triumph in your praise. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel from everlasting to everlasting. And all the people say, Amen, and praise the Lord. But now we come to the fact that in the wake of this judgment, he is now fully capable of reigning in the manner in which he has promised to do so. And they praise God for this, knowing that his omnipotence, meaning that God is all-powerful, is now fully on display. Now, this was significant in John's day. You have to understand the culture of that time. When John said this and his readers read this at that moment in time, 
John was making a statement that you and I may not fully appreciate today. For it was the Emperor Domitian at the time of John's uh, banishment to the island of Patmos, it was Domitian himself who sent John to the island of Patmos, who declared to all of the Roman emperor that he himself was God all-powerful. And in this reign of his, Domitian upon the world, he subjected the, he subjected the world to his own personal whims and ideas. And of course, part of that was persecuting Christians because Christians refused, like John, to bend the knee to his so-called deification. That he refused. John refused, and this is why he was banished. Well, you say, well, why didn't they just kill him like they did the other Christians? Well, they tried. History tells us that they tried to boil John in a vat of oil. And we're surprised when he took out a bar of soap, a scrub brush, and his rubber ducky, and he never boiled. They didn't know what to do with this guy. So the Romans finally gave up, and they said, you know, just put him on that remote island of Patmos and let him stay there, and, you know, he won't bother us anymore. He won't cause us any more trouble. He won't be inciting a rebellion and uh, against us and encouraging Christians not to bow to the deification of the Roman Empire. And yet, while he was on the island there by himself, God gave him the greatest revelation. He wrote it down, brought it back with him, and we have it today and are reading it this morning. And he says here that it is God, Jesus Christ, who is all-powerful, and in the wake of the judgment of this world system that is to never rise again, God demonstrates that he is truly and once and for all on the throne. And nothing and no one will ever remove him from it. That's the assurance that John is giving us that we say hallelujah, praise God to that God reigns, for he is omnipotent, he is the God Almighty. In verse 7, we are now introduced to our third reason for rejoicing. Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his wife has made herself ready. And to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright, for the linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Then he said to me, Right, blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These things are the true sayings of God. One of the things I'm looking forward to is this moment in time, the marriage supper of the Lamb. Now, a lot of Christians don't seem to be familiar with this. Oh, maybe they've heard the term, but they don't really understand what it means and when it'll occur. It seems to occur before the millennial reign of Christ here on this earth. It is a culmination. It is the climax of our relationship with him. Now, today, many Christians, 
many of our brothers and sisters um, are starting to reject the idea and frown upon the idea that we call Christianity a personal relationship with God. They find that that term is just too intimate. And because of that, that we lessen our reverence to God by saying that we have a personal relationship with Him. Now, I disagree with them completely. Because the entire relationship of a Christian to God is given and demonstrated and illustrated through the concept of marriage. The most intimate relationship that we can have here on this earth. It is the most intimate relationship that two people created by God in a fallen state can have with one another. And it is this that God uses to describe his desired relationship with you and I. So to say that we have a personal, intimate relationship with God, I believe is consistent with the illustrations that he has given us through his word. And there's no disrespect, there's no ill reverence of him by me saying that. I'm simply complying to what he has prescribed for me as a Christian. I believe that God wants a personal and very intimate relationship with you. In fact, Jesus, when describing the relationship, when he said to those who would stand before him and say to him, Oh Lord, haven't we done all of these wonderful things in your name? In Matthew 7, 21, there's a very concerning reply of Christ, and that is that he says, I never knew you. I never knew you. Depart from me. The word know there is one of the most intimate words that is used for physical intimacy in the Hebrew language in the Old Testament. God wants a personal and intimate relationship with you. And I believe that is consistent with every single uh, mention of his relationship with us in the Bible. Notice with me in Revelation, again, notice the language in which he uses. Let us be glad and rejoice, in verse 7, and give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come. This is the marriage of Christ with the church, okay? Christ with the church. Notice, it doesn't say Lord here. It doesn't say King here to describe Jesus. What word does John select to describe our husband, Christ? The word Lamb. And what does that demonstrate? It demonstrates and reminds us of the sacrifice that he made for us, and it is on this basis that we relate to him. Okay? Think about that for a moment. The reason we love God, John said, is because he first loved us. How did he demonstrate that love? Through his sacrifice for you and I. So when he calls himself, or when John describes him as a lamb, he's saying that the marriage relationship is built on love, and that love demonstrated through the sacrifice that he has made on our behalf. Isn't that wonderful? Doesn't that change everything? 
about the intimacy that we can have with Christ. And he goes on to say, And to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. My wife and I celebrated our 29th year of marriage this year. Next year is the big one. And I told her for our 30th anniversary, I'm going to take her someplace special. I'm going to take her to a restaurant that she doesn't have to carry her tray. Because I'm a good guy that way, okay? I am the last of the really big spenders. Just because we use coupons on our 29th anniversary dinner. Does anybody have a spare room? <laughs> but talking about our wedding, the actual ceremony itself, it was, well, just to say, it was a blessing from God that it even came together. I'll spare you the details, but one of the moments that I remember so vividly is when I was standing up there with my pastor waiting for Dina entered the church. The church was packed, and of course, it was one of the hottest days of the year that we got married. And of course, the church's air conditioner didn't work at that time. So I'm standing up there, and we're, we're talking, and my pastor's laughing with me and saying, well, you finally made it. I said, well, she hasn't shown up yet, so <laughs> jury's out. But I remember that when the church stood and the music started, and the doors were open, and she was there at the back of the church standing with her father. I was in awe. I, my, my, my tongue just, I, I was like, my mouth just dropped. I couldn't believe it. And it isn't because she simply showed up. Yes, I was thankful for that. But she was gorgeous, absolutely gorgeous in her dress and so forth. And I was like, Lord. You're too good. And that's the way Christ is going to present us to himself. The linen that he speaks of is the righteousness that Christ drapes upon us, allowing us the grace to do the good works that he calls us to do. For he took us out of the world, but he loved us too much to leave us that way. So he began to work in us and then through us changing us from the inside out, presenting his bride to himself without spot or blemish. And at that moment, we are arrayed in the white righteousness of Christ, demonstrated through those things that by his grace we were able to do for him and for his glory. Now, some men here say, well, you know what? I feel a little uncomfortable being called the bride. You know what? Get over it. All right? <laughs> This is a whole different thing. Let's not bring our social craziness into this particular. This was around a lot longer before we asked the question, what is a woman, okay? But we are going to be arrayed in that way before Christ. And trust me, when we get there at that moment, none of us are going to be concerned about, hey, I'm a guy and I'm a bride, you know. It's not going to happen. We're going to be too much in awe of our Savior and of our Lord. I think of Hosea, who went on to say in Hosea 2, 19 and 20, 
I will betroth you to me forever. Yes, I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice. In loving kindness and mercy, I will betroth you to me in faithfulness. And you shall know the Lord. Isaiah wrote, for, you, for your maker is your husband, in Isaiah 54, 5. The Lord of hosts is his name, and your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. He is called the God of the whole earth. And in the New Testament, this continues. As Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 11, 1 and 2, Oh, that you would bear with me in a little folly, and indeed you do bear with me, he says, for I am jealous for you with godly jealousy. For I have betrothed you to one husband that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. If this is the manner in which our relationship with God is described, then why is it inappropriate for us to say that we have a personal, intimate relationship with Christ? When we come to marriage here in America... And we come to Ephesians chapter 5. It is interesting that over the last 30 years, marriage has been one of the most repeated topics in this church today. And yet, many Christians struggle in their marriages. And when this passage is read and used as a teaching tool, a teaching text, I should say, they often simply focus on the aspects of responsibility. Husbands are to lead, wives are to submit, to love and to respect. And that's all correct according to that passage. But don't miss the overall. Don't miss the foundation of the overall. Notice what Paul says here in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25. Turn there with me in your Bibles, if you will. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25. Before we even get to the whole submission of the woman onto the man, and again, we can do, have discussions on what that looks like, let us begin as Paul begins. Husbands, love your wives. Well, love them how? Well, look what he says next. Just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. How did John describe the God in whom we were marrying, as a lamb for us to remember the sacrifice in which he has made on our behalf. Here Paul the Apostle says the very same thing, that the love that we have as husbands for our wives must be demonstrated in a sacrificial, unconditional manner for the purpose that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of the water by the word. Meaning that as my responsibility as a husband, number one is to love her as Christ loves her. Number two, it is to uh, help her become the woman that God wants her to be. To encourage her through the word. To pray with her. To, to uh, lift her up when she's down. Notice the parallel, that he might present her to himself, a glorious church not having spot nor wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. Notice that. The fundamental 
foundation of a Christian marriage is the relationship of the individual to, to God through Christ. It is meant to demonstrate to the entire world the gospel of Jesus Christ. My love for my wife should show the world God's love for them. Do we get it? If we remember these things, if we prioritize the things that God has prioritized, that Paul has prioritized, and we lead according to this love, according to this grace. In verse 28, so husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourished it and cherished it, So, uh, just as the Lord does the church. For we are members of his body and of his flesh and of his bones. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and join to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. It's all consistent. And as the wife submits onto the husband, she's submitting onto the love. Now, I don't believe that either one of those are conditional. I don't believe that if the husband lacks that love, that the wife is then released from her obligation to submit onto him. And vice versa. If you're a husband loving your wife and she refuses to submit onto you, you still love her the way Christ has loved the church because we are personally and independently responsible to God for the various roles in which God has asked us to play. But her submission onto me has nothing to do with the state of her uh, inferiority. Excuse me. I can't say the word right now. She is not less than me. But it is my job to lead her and to love her as Christ loves her and leads her. Ultimately, she's responsible to Jesus for all that she does. Ultimately, I am responsible to God for all that I do. If we could just come as Christians and remember this, think of how our marriages would be transformed. Transformed. Again, it's all consistent. We love him because he first loved us. Husbands, love your wife as Christ loved the church in an unconditional, sacrificial manner. Now, we need to understand the biblical process of marriage. We need to go back now into the Hebrew culture and to understand and to help us understand how individuals became married at that time. You know, it isn't like the American marriage today where we find somebody on Tinder, okay, and then we uh, go through everything, we sign prenups, and then we get engaged, okay, and then we have baby showers and uh, we, I mean, bridal showers and we have bachelor parties and bachelorette parties and all of that. And we don't run to Las Vegas and get married in the, you know, the Elvis Chapel. They didn't do that back in Israel back in that day. In, you know, in, in Las Vegas, you can get married at the Elvis Chapel, and then three buildings down, there's a place where you can get drive through divorces. <laughs> wow. Have we cheapened everything in this country? But that being said, we have to understand the process of marriage in the Hebrew culture. It started with the parents. 
And the parents would arrange a marriage between their sons and daughters. Before the kids even knew about it, the marriage would be arranged. And that at a certain age, then a betrothal period would come. Where in the state of Israel, they were seen as legally married, but they didn't dwell together. It was a time where they were betrothed. They were not intimate with one another. They did not dwell with one another. And they went and made preparations. The preparation during the betrothal period was that the groom would then go and prepare a place for him and his bride. And often it was to add another room onto his father's home for him and his bride to dwell. And then at a certain time, he would then come back for her, and her job was to make the preparations and to uh, be waiting for him to return at an unannounced time, prepared to receive him and to enter into the, what is called the pre- uh, presentation phase after the betrothal. And after the preparations of the couple, the future home was finished, and all the arrangements were finalized, as one wrote, the next stage in the marriage could commence, leading up to the festivities prior to the wedding ceremony. The groom would leave his home and travel to the bride's home, where she would be waiting with her friends and bridesmaids, And then the groom would then claim her as his own beloved bride, which then would lead to the ceremony, the third phase. The presentation of the bride would then initiate a lengthy time of festivities known as the wedding supper, which could last several days. New bride and groom would then depart the marriage supper with full rights, privileges, responsibility as husband and wife. Now, the reason I tell you this is because notice how it parallels the theological aspects of our relationship with God through Christ. First of all, in the beginning, before the foundations of the world, God, in His foreknowledge, chose you and I to be part of the church. Just like the parents arranging the marriage before the kids even knew about it, God had already arranged us to have a relationship with him before the foundations of the earth. Then, when we got saved, that betrothal period began. We are in a binding relationship with Christ that awaits its complete realization. So we've been arranged, now we've been betrothed, and you and I who are saved today are in that state. And at the presentation, the church will be raptured to meet the Lord in the air. That's when we will be joined with him. And then the ceremony follows. Here in our text, the wedding feast of the Lamb, the final consummation will begin as Christ and the church take their place to reign over all the earth in the millennial kingdom in Revelation chapter 20. So I say again, is it wrong for us to say that we have a personal and intimate relationship with God. Now, I need to tell you the bad news. The Bible also warns us that we can commit adultery against God. And today, even though our world has made adultery a common thing within our society, it is still devastating to those who find themselves within it. 
The devastation that adultery creates is unbelievable, and it is one of the most difficult things to recover from. But notice what James said in James verses 4 and 5, writing to Christians, calling them adulterers and adulteresses. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of this world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the scripture says in vain, the spirit who dwells in you, in us, yearns jealousy, jealously. Very interesting that it is possible. John also talked about this in 1 John 2, 15 through 17. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world is the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. It is not of our Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away, and the lusts of it. But he who does the will of God abides forever. Notice with me. It is possible to commit adultery. That adultery occurs when we love the world more than we love our God. That when we place our affections upon the world system that has just been dealt with by God in Revelation 17, 18, when we do so, we lose that intimacy. It's not that God cuts us off. It's that we lose that personal intimacy with Him. And we are in a state of sin before God and our need of repentance. Christians today need to take a step back and ask themselves the honest question, what is my relationship with the world around me? Are we looking to the world to provide things that only God can provide for us? Are we looking to the world for a certain degree of happiness or fulfillment or satisfaction that truly we should only be finding in Christ? Are we looking as I may describe as an individual with one foot in the world and one foot in Christ. These would all be indications and conditions of adultery against your God himself, against Christ, our husband, committing that adultery according to Scripture. Now, it isn't that God wants to totally remove us from our interaction with the world. That's something that I believe has happened over the last 20 years. In America, we had the privilege of creating a Christian subculture that allowed us to uh, avoid any contact or interaction with the world. We had our own Christian bookstores, our Christian television, our Christian radio, Christian clothes, Christian salt clay, uh, shakers that have been sanctified because they have a verse on them, okay? We had our own little Christian world. And truly, we are part of the kingdom of God. There's no doubt about that. But this, cre this subculture was created to avoid any interaction, any contact with the world, because if I may say in a very deep theological way, we thought the world had cooties and we didn't want to get them. But if we withdraw ourselves to that degree and we hide within the subculture that we've created, we become ineffective as witnesses, and that's exactly what's happened. Now we look into the world and we say, how did we ever get here? We got here because we chose not to be lights in the world. We withdrew from the world. We stopped talking to our neighbors, to our friends. 
We stop getting involved in the public school system or in the voting process. We withdrew from much of that as the Christians in whole across our country. And then the world slid, our country slid into this depravity that we see today. And then we say, well, why did it happen? You and I are meant to be salt and light, guys. We need to get in there. And I think the church is finally waking up to that. Let me read what one wrote. He says, this does not mean that we should somehow isolate ourselves from the world we're drawing into some kind of sanitized safe zone or safe space where we never rub shoulders with those outside of Christ? Of course not. We would have to leave the planet to avoid contact with the world and the world system. Do you know that Paul himself said this in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 5, verses 9 and 10? I wrote to you in my epistle not to keep company with sexually immoral people. But then verse 10, notice what he says here. Yet I certainly did not mean with the sexually immoral people of this world or with the covetousness or the extortionists or extortioners, idolaters, since you would need to go out of the world. He wants us there to be witnesses. As one wrote, he said this, I love this. We want to influence people. Isn't it interesting that the most coveted job today by young people is to be a YouTube influencer? I don't know what that really means. I think they really mean that they want to stay in their bedroom, have a YouTube channel, and get paid for it. I think that's what they're really saying. But they want to be influencers. We want to influence people and win them to Christ. And we cannot do that if we cut ourselves off from contact with the unsaved world. The great preacher Vance Havner wrote, he said, We are not to be isolated, but insulated, moving in the midst of evil, but untouched by it. I would add the thought that we are to infiltrate our world, permeating our, our contemporary culture with the gospel. Now I want to encourage you one step further. With all that is happening in this world, God is still at work today. Have you seen the latest cover of Newsweek? Now remember, it was Newsweek in the 1960s that first said God was dead. Three years later, they wrote the great article of the Jesus movement that, of course, Calvary Chapel was birthed out of. But the upcoming cover says this. It should be on the slide behind me. The news we cover says, Jesus has taken Hollywood. Did you ever think you'd read that from a secular news uh, magazine? And the reason being is because of the unexpected surprise that movies such as Sound of Freedom have become. I think Sound of Freedom just recently passed $100 million. It was crowdfunded from the beginning. But he also goes on to the article to say this about another film that I think we are all familiar with. And The Jesus Revolution, a film released earlier this year, which is all about Calvary Chapel, of the hippies turning to Christ in the 1970s, surpassed expectations to such a degree to become Lion Gate's biggest release over four years. Praise God, right? If you haven't seen Jesus' Revolution, yeah, amen to that. 
Jesus Revolution is the story of the birth of Calvary Chapels. And encouragingly, it is on Netflix right now, if you have a Netflix account. Now, if you don't have one, please be a Christian and don't steal your brothers, okay? You know, I could use your login. I want to watch Jesus Revolution. My pastor told me to, okay? You know, but let me read a little bit more if I may. Need more proof that Jesus is suddenly a very hot commodity in the entertainment industry? Consider that MGM, 21st Century Fox, and Sony Pictures have each launched their own faith-based studios. Meanwhile, renowned director Martin Scorsese is planning a new film about Jesus. Now, I, let's wait and see on that one. <laughs> G- G- Salvation in his movie, I'm going to make them an offer they can't refuse, you know. And, the, uh, and so is the art house director Terrence Malick. And notice this. And Netflix has said it is working on bringing more faith-based content to its platform as well. Then the writer went on to say this. There's a tremendously powerful movement towards Jesus right now that most people aren't aware of. This is the founder of Movie Guide, Ted Bahar, which hosts an annual gala that rewards films based on biblical messaging. The nature of man is hostile to Christianity and to salvation. But there is more and more people in Hollywood moving in the opposite direction. Amen? Wow, did you ever think you'd see this? If Hollywood can be influenced, if Hollywood can change its direction, so can our friends, family, loved ones, co-workers who don't know Christ. And in Revelation 19, 10 and 9 and 10, as we close, and then he said to me, write, blessed are those who called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true sayings of God. And I fell at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, see that you do not do that. I am your fellow servant and of your brethren who have the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. It's all about him from beginning to end. Notice what one wrote, the great commentator John Wolverd, one of my heroes. The spirit of both the proclamation and the telling of the future is bound up in the testimony of Jesus. Jesus is the Lamb, and not just a chronologically, chronologically of the last things. It is the theme of Revelation. The centerpiece of Revelation is Jesus himself, you say. As Wolverd succinctly declares, this means that prophecy at its very heart is designed to unfold the beauty and the loveliness of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen and amen. Guys, we're in exciting times. And I want to be part of what God is doing going forward. Oh, we know that one day we will all stand there and say, hallelujah, praise God. For the fact that evil has been vanquished, that God now fully reigns, and that we have been invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. 